great to have Christian here with us uh, preaching and then after the service as well we invite you to a lunch in the fellowship hall where Christian will be able to share more about our partnership uh, with the Berlin Project, a really encouraging ministry that we'd love to let you know more about. Before he preaches though, let me, let me pray for him. Father, again we thank you for just the privilege we have in turning to your words and we thank you for Christian and the calling you have placed on his life first as a follower of Jesus, that you have given him life in your son, and second, Lord, as a preacher of your word. So, Lord, would your spirit well up within his heart so that the grace of the gospel would be real and that it would overflow from him to us, give him great liberty, great freedom to proclaim your son to us. We need to hear about this Jesus. So, bless Christian, I pray in your son's name. Amen. Thank you, James. Thank you for having me come here and speak to you this morning. It's great to be here. I've been here a couple of times. Always good to be here. I like to uh, see again familiar faces and spend some time with you. And even this morning, preach about this passage. Um, Of course, English is not my usual sermon language. So if you have problems understanding me, just raise your arm and somebody will come with an iPod with a sermon of James on it. And if I see the, the white earpieces, I, I won't be offended. <laughs> Three weeks ago, uh, my colleague and I attended a conference of the German Mainline Church. We had been invited to speak about Berlin Project Church. And in many ways, it was quite a fascinating conference because it was a gathering of a prob- a probably 800 leaders and pastors from the Mainline Church in Germany. And it's often very spiritually dead and stale. But they came together to talk about fresh expressions of church today. And Do Kyung and I um, did a workshop where we were sharing about the experiences that we had been gathering at Berlin Project Church. And then Do Kyung showed some of the pictures of our worship service uh, with a similar look. Like here I would say, a filled rose, a whole bunch of people sitting in a worship service. To us a relatively normal uh, site, but then when the pictures came on, one of the pastors they, there did this loud wow and incredible. Um, actually, she said literally madness. And, <laughs> and the reason for that was simply that it was so surprising to her from a regular German perspective uh, to see so many people in a church service, uh, many people between 20 and 35 years of age, and particularly uh, in the city center of Berlin. And to me, that wow was a special reminder of uh, how extraordinary it truly is. Sometimes when we're in church work, we are busy with all the things going on, and we forget about the specialness of it all. And it was a great reminder. Yes, it is something special. Things are moving. If people want to live out the faith, if new people are becoming Christians, and if there is just a general dynamic of the spirit that is that is that someone can pick up when he comes in. And as we know from the scriptures, a bit like this, just probably about a thousand times stronger, must have been the early times of the Christian church in these big cities of the Roman Empire. Dynamic communities, many people are becoming Christian, a certain excitement in the air going on. And of course we can read about that in Acts and also in some of the other letters that follow in the New Testament. But when we just read this passage today from Second Timothy, it is important to understand that this was not the situation that is behind that letter. Instead, the situation here was rather the opposite. 
This letter is written by the great Apostle Paul, but Paul is writing this from prison. He's held for his faith. He's experiencing the heat of injustice in a very stinging personal way. But there was even a bigger problem, of which we can read in this passage between the lines, namely that Paul saw his life's work being challenged, crumbling, at least a good chunk of it, because he had been receiving reports of the decay and closure of young church communities he himself had planted a while ago in an entire region in Asia, the province, province of Asia, which is the western third of the current, of current Turkey. Back in Acts 19.10, we can read about the beginnings in that same region. It says there in Ephesus, Paul was preaching daily in the hall of Tyrannus for two years that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks, and God was doing extraordinary miracles. That was about 53 A.D. But here in our passage, 10 years later, around 63 A.D., we read something very different in verse 15. It says, you know that everyone in the province of Asia has deserted me. Everyone. And that meant not only deserting Paul, but that meant really deserting the faith as Paul was so centrally a representative of that faith. John Stott sums it up like this. He says, the great awakening had been followed by a great defection. So there was a real loss of that early dynamic and the freshness in the faith. And all of a sudden, the gospel in that area was close to being extinct again. And in this very situation, Paul turns to his mentee, Timothy, and writes to him, Keep, protect, and guard the gospel. Guard the gospel, the good deposit that was entrusted to you. And as we just said, this is luckily not exactly the situation that we are in at Berlin Project, and also not exactly the situation that you are in here at McLean Press. We are rather on the opposite side, on the dynamic side, so to say. But I'm thinking, wouldn't it be, wouldn't it be a good thing for us particularly when in dynamic in good times, to take a close and careful look at those crisis, crisis moments as well. Because here's the point that I see for us there. If we together could have a faith that would even endure such harsh situations as described here, then we would truly have a faith, a strong faith, a resilient faith, a solid faith, not easily be shaken. Typical German attitude, one could say, is to build things and tools and appliances that are actually more solid and robust than one will ever need in their everyday use. <laughs> build for eternity. We like to build houses that last much longer than any family will ever live in it, and when they move out, it's too ugly to really move in again. <laughs> we like to build cars that nobody will ever use that long and go that fast with, and, and, and nobody really expects to need such stability. But there is a comfort in knowing that it could hold up and endure, even under the heaviest stress. It's a good thing to have to be prepared. And in a sense, this could be a picture for robust, resilient faith as well. If we, are, if we actually had a faith that could even survive such a situation, such a defection and decay, then we would truly have a faith in truly built for eternity. And I think the, the entire letter, Second Timothy, gives us, gives us an insight into exactly such faith because those words come directly from under such stress. So we get to ask a few questions of our own. How does that resilient faith look like? What do people do if they are under such stress? What does it mean to have a faith that endures? And I have three points I want to go through with you on this thought. 
to live the gospel is my first point. Just recently I had breakfast with a good friend from Berlin Project and we went to our favorite breakfast place in the neighborhood and there he said something about the two of us and essentially about all of Berlin Project community that stuck with me. He said, actually the only reason why we know each other is because of our interest in God and the faith. Without that we would probably have never met each other. And at first this caught me a bit by surprise because meanwhile The guy has become a very good friend of mine, one of my best friends indeed, and with the church or without the church that is, and there is a whole list of hobbies and interests that connect us today, things that are even sometimes more prevalent in, in everyday life to us. So in the first moment I was thinking, is he somehow trying to tell me now that we are actually not that close of friends that <laughs> I thought? But... It is true what he said. Originally, we know each other for one reason alone, because of our interest in God and our desire to live out the faith. The many other things came in addition to that. And the point for me is this. If that is the case, well, then let's do exactly that. Then let's indeed live out the gospel together, if that was the reason that we originally knew each other. If that is our original connection point, let's just do it. It's not our friendship, let's not have our friendship that also developed in any way, shape, or form supersede the first reason why we got to know each other. If you were here in McLean, just a little bit like us in Berlin, then you know how there is sometimes this awkward shyness about, about living out the faith. Should I really say something about God right now, here, at this breakfast place? Should I really say something that the other person I know knows so well and has heard a thousand of times? Should I really ask for a, a prayer right now? Uh, probably not. We're not at church and we know each other so well. What's the point? But the answer is, of course we should. Of course you should. Of course I should, I think. That's why we know each other. All the other things came second. Let's make, not make up, mix up our friendships with what originally connected us. Because originally there was the one reason, Christ and our interest in him, so let's do live that together. And that is precisely what I see in this passage from Second Timothy. This is exactly what these two men were doing, Paul and Timothy. They lived out the gospel together. Many other things certainly connected them as well. Paul can even call Timothy my child, my son. But they also practiced and cherished what connected them originally. And our entire passage is kind of a showcase for that how to live out the gospel together. And one aspect of what that means is very clear here, namely, namely through personal encouragements, even personal charges, one could say. Don't be ashamed. Suffer with me. Keep the faith. Be strong in grace. And it's also very clear that these charges are not coming from a know-it-all perspective, some distance Perspective. No, they come from a very invested heart, from a confidant, from a friend. But still, there are charges. There are very specific, concrete things that into a personal situation. And I asked my congregation two weeks ago when I preached this message there, when was the last time that one of your confidants, your friends, gave you such a heartfelt charge? Or you in turn to someone else? I think we're so incredibly shy about that. Even when we are dealing with a good friend, even when a clear necessity and a clear hunger and problem is in the air, we're so shy about becoming very personal 
with the gospel message. Who am I to say? Who are we to say? Well, we are brothers and sisters together, and the very first reason why we originally met is to live out the gospel together. Dietrich Bonhoeffer is someone who know quite a bit about resilient faith in more recent times, wrote about this, and you have that quote on the front page of your bulletin. He wrote, What a difficult thing it often is to utter the name of Jesus Christ in the presence even of the brother. And yet, where Christians live together, the time must come when one person will declare God's word and will to another. It is inconceivable that the things that are of utmost importance to each one individually should not be spoken by one to another. If we cannot bring ourselves to utter it, we shall have to ask ourselves whether we are not just seeing our brother in his human honor, which we are afraid to touch, and thus forgetting the most important thing, namely that he too, no matter how old or highly placed or distinguished he may be, is still a man like us, a sinner in crying need of God's grace. This recognition gives to our brotherly speech the freedom and candor that that it needs. We speak to one another in regards to the help we both require. We warn one another against the disobedience that is our common destruction. We are gentle and we are severe with one another, for we know both God's kindness and God's severity. Why should we be afraid of one another since both of us have only God to fear? Powerful words, I think. And I think there we have our first attribute of resilient faith. Let's say um, this reminder that the original basis of our connection was to live out the gospel together. So let's just do it together. In spite of the friendships and connections that have developed following that, let's encourage each other, let's ask for prayers, let's give personal advice. Because we have one another exactly that we would not be deterred were distracted by friendships, nor our interests, nor our coolness, nor our connections, nor our income brackets, nor our status, or anything else, but would live out the gospel together. Without that living out the gospel in that passage, in that letter form, who knows what would happen with Christianity in the province of Asia. We know from history that Christianity flourished there again, but it might well well have hinged on on those lines, on those words, living out the gospel together. And then there is a second mark of resilient faith in this text, namely, to be clear about the gospel, clarity about the essence of the faith. We can see that particularly in verse verse 9 and 10, because in verse 9 and 10, Paul makes a specific effort to sum up the core of the faith he's standing for. And in most translations, it starts with a he, it starts as a separate entity, verses 9 and 10, because that's his summary. And let me read it again. He saved us and called us with a holy calling, not because of anything we have done, but because of his own purpose and grace. This grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time, but it has now been revealed through the appearing of our Savior, Jesus Christ, who has destroyed death and has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. It's interesting to see that Paul, through the entire passage, uses also just some catch words to refer to the gospel. In a summary way, buzzwords that everybody knew. He was saying in verse 13, he calls it the pattern of sound teaching. In verse 14, he says the good deposit. In verse 11, he calls it simply the gospel. 
And we can presume that Timothy very well knew what these words meant because he knew Paul very well. But obviously that wasn't quite enough for Paul to only use buzzwords, catchwords, to get it across. Instead, he takes the time in 9 and 10 again to spell out what the essence really is, the gospel worth, worth preserving. He wanted to get it obviously really clear. And from this, it seems to me that a resilient faith is somewhat constantly involved in that clarification, the process, personal process of constant reformulation, what the, what the essence, what the substance really is that I believe in, to again and again to get it clear for myself. And I find it intriguing that while Paul is always using the same topics, in this way he has never quite said it before. These words in 9 and 10 are unique words, same topics, but is a new formulation. And it shows that Paul was constantly reworking for him and for others, reaffirming for him and for others in personal ways what the essence of the faith really is. And I think that's also part of resilient faith today, to be in that constant process of clarification, to get it clear again what we trust in, to get our personal verse 9 and 10 built on the topics that the Gospels are made of. So then, what is the content of Paul's Gospel summary? And here are just a few threads of it. To me, the first remarkable thing is the beginning of verse 9. As I said, in most translations, just with a straightforward he. He has saved us. Meaning it all starts with a person. The summary could easily have started with it. It has to be said. It has to be remembered. Something like this. But it is a he that's at the beginning. And that's an important reminder to us that the center of our faith is a person. Not just principles. Not just truths, not just statements that are inspiring, but the substance as a person God revealed in the Son that we can relate to. And it's also not just information about that person, anecdotes, stories from his life in the past, but the substance of our faith is a God with a personality that that we can relate to, that we can have experiences with in everyday life. And this differentiation is important because it's the difference, one could say, between the relationship I can have with my favorite books and my favorite people. I do have a relationship with my, my, with my favorite books. I like to go to the shelf, pick them up, and go to the passages where I mark things and read them again and be inspired and touched and, wow, that's a good thought. But it's a totally different thing than relationship to my favorite people where I go to and we have real interaction, where they not only speak but also listen, where they react, where we have a dynamic interaction and, and there is a care, a true care, a love that is palpable to me. To only be moved by inspiring thoughts and great principles, is that true faith yet? I certainly think it's not resilient faith because the gospel is so much more than just cognitive exercise. It's so much more than just thoughts about God. It's God himself in my everyday life. And, and Paul gives a beautiful example here how he himself is experiencing that, experiencing that in verse 12. He was also an intellectual. He certainly was also inspired by the greatness of reasoning that is part of the faith. But in verse 12 he says, I'm not ashamed because I know whom I have believed in. Not just what, 
Jesus Christ. And I'm convinced that he is able to guard today. He is able to guard present, what has been trusted to me. So a person and a dynamic relationship with that person, that's the core of our faith, he. And then a second thread from that summary of the substance of the faith is that we're dealing with good news. We know that's the translation of gospel, good news. But that means the substance of the faith Paul is suffering for, per definition, is not good advice, but good news. And it's, that's the whole pinch of the term that we often don't really grasp without that differentiation, without putting those two things vice versa, good news with this good advice. Gospel means good news about something, something that has already been done, not good advice that has yet to be done. That's the reason why all the figures in the New Testament, starting with Jesus going through John, pick that term from their surrounding to express what the essence of faith really is all about. Good news about things already done and achieved instead of good rules and principles that are still required to be done and achieved. And we see that so clearly here in verse 9 and 10 in Paul's summary of the substance of the faith because there is not a single command or advice in that summary, not even a golden rule by which to live. There is advice before and after that summary in regards to what to do with that summary of the gospel. But the message itself Paul is suffering for, the good teaching itself, is from start to finish news. Like the news that the economy is picking up again. Like news of a comet that didn't hit Earth. Like news from some distant headquarter that my department will not be shut down. And 500 employees and I will retain our jobs. In each case, we're talking about events to which we had nothing to contribute, but that have huge positive implications for oneself. That is the news material, so to speak. And exactly like this, just a thousand times more relevant and more profound is the gospel for us. We are saved. We've got a calling. Christ did die for us. And there is nothing we can contribute. Paul's gospel isn't a wise golden rule that has yet to be done for our lives to work out. But Paul's gospel is that Christ did do something already for our lives to work out, eternally work out. And I think that is also something we can easily mix up a little bit in, in everyday faith practice because the natural question is, can't good advice also be gospel in a sense? The golden rule to live and flourish by, isn't that also something really good? Particularly when it comes from God who knows our life inside out. And to me the answer is, of course there is great good in that. And the Bible has words for that. Wisdom being one of those words. But we have to remind ourselves that's, that's not the unique contribution, the unique gospel that differentiates us from others. Even the most golden rule will not make that term, will not fit into verse 9 and 10. Because think with me, how would our lives look like if good advice and golden rules were the essence of our faith? How would our lives look like if that was the good deposit? It would be sometimes good as long as we are disciplined and meticulously following those rules, it would be good. But what when we reach the limitations of ourselves? A very practical question in everyday, li everyday life, it is, is it really enough to have good advice, to have golden rules, 
and then everything is easy. In your marriage, your relationship, is it enough to know what the golden rules would be for that moment of stress? Or isn't it rather the case that you know quite well what would be right to love, to forgive, but our problem is that we're still not doing what we know to be the good rule? Well, money, we know what the rules for giving and spending are. Still, we're not doing them. Or addictions, we know too much, we know very well that, that alcohol, too much alcohol, or that specific kind of shopping sprees or pornography is truly not good for us. We know all the golden rules about it. We can probably give a hard-fed list why it's not good for us. But still, we are caught and trapped in it again and again. Rules are not gospel because there are two forces at work in us, not just discipline and reason, but also the flesh. As the Bible says again and again, our personal shadows, we simply cannot jump even after 20 years of church or something. Our personal insurmountables. Got that from the dictionary. I hope it works. <laughs> what, we, what we need instead and what true gospel would be is more than that. It is a, it's a savior that we need. Someone to pull us out from under a pile. As verse 9 says, he who has saved us. Everyone who has tasted his own personal limits, in spite of good advice, in spite of knowing exactly what to do, knows that we need more than just advice and rules, but news about a Savior for us, who is most real when we are most weak, who pulls us out when we are done, who helps us through when we are stuck. He has, he has saved us and called us with a holy calling. Two weeks ago, I saw the movie Flight, Denzel Washington. You might also have seen a good story. It's about a man who knew everything and was able to do quite a lot. He even can fly an airplane upside down with about 100 people in and save their lives. But he cannot do one thing, which is to rid himself of alcohol, even though he knows very much what the good rule and advice would be. And, and what it is in that movie that will put him right at the end is not good advice or therapeutical tricks, but only one thing, love. Love of one and then even two very special people in his life. And exactly that, just in a much greater sense, is what we all have through Christ. Love without end, again and again, approaching as our shadows and unsurmountables kind of closing our sky and our, vis our view for the future. God meeting us where we need him the most, in our limits and disabilities, without blaming us, but with forgiveness, with an acceptance that nothing can scare, and with the calling of our name and identity that we often ourselves have forgotten. It is an impressive, big gift God is giving us by saving us again and again and again. A big gift in the sense that it is so deep and much when the moment comes where the Holy Spirit makes us realize this. It's big, it's, it's a lot. But a big present also because it comes to us when we least deserve it to come. We're least expected to arrive and are into our least gift-like gift -like versions of ourselves, in spite of ourselves. And these two qualities the depth of it and the in spite of it, make it into a, a gigantic gift, make it into 
a gift so very great that the word, word gift doesn't quite cut it anymore. It needs a new word for it, and that word is grace. And that is the central word in this passage here, the truly good news, the real essence of our faith, that we can be men and women living by grace. We don't have to get lost in our projects of self-definition or self-foundation. We don't have to pretend that we have to do everything our own on ourselves. Yes, we are disciplined people. Yes, we are looking for things that are good and that are wholesome to do and to follow. But at the core, we are people who know that we need more than that, namely salvation in Christ. In chapter 2.1, Paul puts all of that together in one short personal phrase. He says, Timothy, be strong in the grace of Christ. That's the NIV translation. Timothy, be strong in the grace of Christ. And that leads to a very simple definition of what it means to be a Christian from this text. As Christians, we live by grace, we search for grace, and we practice extent grace. As Christians, we live by grace, we search for grace in our everyday life, and we extend grace to others around us. You then be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And to me, this, is, this very verse is a great reminder that the gospel of grace is no fair weather gospel. Because in this passage in Second Timothy, there was no fair weather. Here conditions were worse than what most of us will ever endure. But what is the anchor and shield Paul is pulling? What is he referring to? It is grace and grace and salvation and grace. The great deposit, the sound teaching, the adrenaline injection from which resilient faith and everything else will flow. And then finally, there is a a last thought about resilient faith from this passage, coming from the final verses, 3 to 7, and that is checking expectations about the gospel. It's a little bit ironic as Paul closes this passage with three pictures that are probably meant to bring his point closer to us. But I personally don't find myself in any of these shoes. don't know about you. I'm neither a soldier nor a real athlete, not a half-athlete, nor a farmer. But I think we, the point is clear. We get the point Paul is making. If you are part of a good endeavor of any kind of worthy calling or undertaking, there will always be difficulty and hard and grinding moments along the way. Don't be fooled, Timothy, by the appeal of comfort and your love for not having distractions or conflicts. If you are part of a great thing, if you are receiving a precious call, it will always include mess and pain. And a true calling might even, like the gospel calling, might even add more problems to your life. And there is no shortcut about it. Check your expectation about it. And I was thinking maybe we need a different picture we're a different profession, really, to drive that home for us today. And I brought you a picture on, on the back of the bulletin. Um, it's a sketch of a famous, from a famous cartoonist and illustrator in Germany. His name is Christoph Niemann. And he has done work for the New York Times and many German magazines. And there it says in English, joke, come out. <laughs> and uh, his picture is part of an, an entire series about his work process. Uh, revealing how he often sits on his own desk. Can conceptual work with the pressure to deliver is something uh, probably many of us can relate to. And with this picture, he's saying, of course, when I follow my calling, 
it feels, or my job, it feels often exactly like this, agonizing, painful to a degree where I could rip open uh, the table with my fingers. And probably many of us have been in that chair. But here's the question of it all. What does that mean? Does that mean that the entire job is bad? That the entire passion and calling to be an illustrator stinks? That it was a mistake to enter that call? No, of course not. But it's just part of the package to be expected. And that's also how it is with this holy calling, with following Christ. That's, that's Paul's point. Following Christ won't be a lifelong day in this spa. And it won't be only uplifting and great. There are many moments um, with the Bible at my desk and it feels exactly like this agonizing, or praying for the thing the 25,000 times, and, and it's still nothing is happening in my life, or moments of obedience that feel painful. There might be even the loss of opportunities because I'm too Christian for that job or something, a reality we sometimes face in Germany. And there's no shortcut to it, and it needs a reality check on our behalf. But it's a wonderful calling. And it was no mistake to enter the call. And in the end, we will taste the full depth and beauty and joy and delight of that calling. So it's about getting that real, what the gospel call really means. I'm suffering as I am, Paul writes, I'm suffering as I am, in brackets, agonizing at my desk. Yet I'm not ashamed because I know whom I have believed. And I'm convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. So resilient faith. What does it mean to really live out the gospel together as this was the first reason why we originally met each other anyways? And then it means to know clarity, know what, but of whom we believe and his grace. And it means to live with the right expectations about that gospel calling as it is also challenging at times. Amen. I will speak a prayer with us. <coughs> Heavenly Father, thank you so much for giving us time here together to have a look into your word and be encouraged and challenged by it. And thank you also for the opportunity to talk about things that can join us together, even though we are geographically apart, but can join us together as congregations that are serving you and that are following you. And we pray that you would give us resilient faith. That's also that is a result of your grace. But we hope that you will wake us up again and again and that you would give us that living out faith, that clarity, and also that realization of problems that could come but are worth for the final end of it. Amen.